Welcome to Got Grief, with me, Holly Sumpton, and Craig Henry, a podcast for adults bereaved as children to share their stories of living side by side with grief. Craig lost his mother to cancer when he was just eight years old, and I lost mine when I was six. Trying to understand something like grief as a child can be really confusing, and it can sometimes seem impossible to know who to turn to. And as we get older, this can begin to feel really devastating. But there can also be hope in the comfort that comes from sharing your experiences with others who understand you, and from simply knowing you're not alone. This is a space for stories to be shared and for voices to be heard in an attempt to start an honest, open and compassionate conversation around grief. So let's get started. Welcome to Got Grief. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Got Grief. This week we are talking to Hope Alderman, who is the author of eight non-fiction books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Motherless Daughters. Hope was the recipient of the 2020 Community Educator Award from the Association for Death Education and Counselling. She is a certified Martha Beck life coach and facilitates motherless daughters retreats and workshops all over the world, some of which have been attended by previous guests. We are very grateful for Hope to be speaking with us today as we find out about her story as an adult bereaved as a child and also her life's work in the grief community, most recently through her latest book, The After Grief. So let's get started. Hi, Hope, and uh, welcome to Got Grief. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. We're absolutely thrilled to be able to chat to you, mainly because our podcast obviously kind of focuses around the stories of adults bereaved as children. And it's so exciting for us to be able to talk to you about that in particular, because, you, you know, your writing and your work has has kind of given um, a vocabulary to what is such a specific experience and has kind of, you know, given a lot to what is such, an, such a specific experience for so many people. So we're really excited to be able to talk to you about that. Um, and obviously your book, um, After Grief, is being released here in March. And so we're really excited to be able to talk to you about that also, which follows sort of both your personal story of grief and also your kind of academic research into it as a concept as well. Um, So why don't we kick off and start by talking about your personal experience um, of losing your mother to cancer? Sure. And thank you so much for having me here today. It's really a pleasure to be doing this podcast. Um, I was 17 years old when my mother died of breast cancer. She had um, been diagnosed about a year and a half earlier. By that point, it was quite advanced. And this was 1981 in the suburbs of New York. And there was very little, actually, there was no grief support for families at the time. If you were lucky, you might have had a religious community or an extended family that was grief literate enough to be able to step in and help. Uh, But we had neither at the time. And um, there wasn't even hospice available yet in our community. So families were sent home from a hospital to just figure things out on their own. And what that meant for many families of that era was to soldier on as if we had not experienced, you know, a cataclysmic subtraction in the family. We stopped talking about my mother's death because it had been so traumatic. We also stopped talking about her life. I was the oldest of three siblings. I have a younger sister, younger brother, and we were raised by our father after that. He really did not have the tools to cope with that. So emotionally, we had to figure things out on our own. And what I say is that at that time, a piece of me became 42 years old, which is how old my mother was, because I had to take over some of her responsibilities and concerns to help in the house. Another part of me, I think, got arrested at 17 because of the trauma and my development in some ways got stuck in adolescence. And then the rest of me progressed along with my peers. I finished high school. I went on to university. I went to my first job. But I didn't feel integrated for quite a while until I'm going to say seven to 10 years later. And during that seven to 10 year period was when I started going to therapy and um, began writing the book Motherless Daughters because no book existed for girls who had lost their moms and interviewing and meeting other women and hearing their stories 
and discovering there were a lot of us out there who had many of the same thoughts and feelings. And now um, this year will mark 40 years since my mother died, which is incomprehensible to me because some of those memories are still so vivid. But I've been thinking a lot over the past decades about what grief looks like 10 years later, 20, 30 years later, how it keeps showing up in our lives. It's not something we ever put down or move past. It's something ideally we learn how to carry forward with us. And that's how the new book, The After Grief came about. I mean, there's so much in there, um, Hope, and you know, thank you for, for for that for your story on that. But what I'm really interested in going back to, you know, when you lost your mother and not having the tools, you know, that you know, not being able to maybe communicate that or being aware of of how to deal with that, which nobody does know how to deal with it when something you know that bad happens. How how did you react? Was there, you know, as you said, you you had to become a mother overnight of in the household, but how did you deal with it in those first? few weeks of, 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 you know, losing, losing the mother in, in your home? I think it was absolute shock. And the children in my family had an unusual experience, although it's not uncommon. But even though our mother was struggling with cancer for a year and a half, we were told she was getting better. We were told that all of her scans were negative. And even though her chemotherapy kept being adjusted, what did we know? We thought that meant maybe she, she's getting less of it, you know? And um, so when it became clear my father knew how sick she was, but she didn't either. This was an era when doctors were still not telling women how sick they were. And um, so my father knew how sick she was. I learned all this in the three days before she died. So the children in my family really experienced her death as more of a sudden loss. So we had what's called shock trauma in addition to what's called strain trauma, which is kind of a double whammy. Strain trauma is when you're watching someone deteriorate over a period of time and waiting, hoping for the best, but expecting the worst, you know? Shock trauma is when something happens very suddenly and there's no warning and you have to adjust on the other end. We had a bit of both actually, because we were watching her deteriorate, which was confusing because we were told she was getting better. And then we had the shock of learning that she was going to die. So in the aftermath, we followed the lead of the adults around us, which was just you get through the funeral and then you get back to life. So I went back to school about a week later, threw myself into my studies, started getting serious about high school for the first time. I think I realized, wow, you know, life has an expiration date. And if I, I, I really want to achieve something, Maybe I better get started sooner than I was anticipating. Like I'm spending a lot of time partying with my boyfriend and maybe what I really need to do is focus on my studies. So I amped it up a lot. And I know that from the report cards that I still have, but I have almost no memories of the first semester of my senior year of high school. And I think in retrospect, it's because the trauma, because I took care of my mom at the end in our house. I think the trauma of that actually messed up my memory storage. And um, so I um, see pictures that my high school friends show me of myself during that time. And I have no recollection of being there in spite of having physical evidence that I was. So that's white space, those first like four or five, six months. And then I just told myself I'd gotten over it. I mean, let's remember also it was 1981. What models of grief did we have? We had Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. And I remember the hospital social worker giving me a pamphlet. She was trying to be helpful. She said, here, take this, you know, it'll help you. And it said the five stages of grief. And I sort of just tucked it in my purse, but then I took it out after my mother's funeral. I remember sitting on my bed that later that afternoon and looking at it and going down the list and thinking denial. No, come on. That's ridiculous. I just buried my mom. I'm not in denial. Anger? No, I was really angry at my dad. I'd probably still be, but I'm not angry at you know my mom for dying. So check. Um, did not bargaining? I did that when she was in the hospital. Didn't work. Check. Depression? Nah, I'm not a depressive personality. Check. So I guess I'm at acceptance. But what happened was, ten months later, I think it was eleven months later, my high school graduation came around, and I was so sad to be graduating high school without my mom there. And I thought oh, I must have done those five stages wrong. And then I carried this secret, you know, this silent shame that I didn't grieve properly because I was still sad a year later. It never occurred to me that maybe the model was, was, was the problem. <laughs> I thought the problem was me, right? It took me a long time to figure out. 
Maybe, maybe that's not how grief works. Maybe I'm trying to fit my experience into an ill-fitting model. I've met so many people over the years who say that's how it happened for them. But also bear in mind, I was 17. I'm sure a lot of your listeners were younger when a mom died. And there's so many factors that go into how we adjust, right? It's the age we were at the time, which means, which, which um, indicates what developmental tasks and challenges we were facing, who died, how close we were with them, the cause of death, the family system of communication, our temperaments and personalities, lots of factors go into that. So although my experience um, may be sound familiar to some of your listeners, it's also unique to me as theirs is to them. We have a lot of overlap. It's like a Venn diagram, you know, like we have our own experiences, but there's that overlap in the middle. Do you think the culture as well coming in externally of like, you have to get over it, you have to be okay now, you know, a year has passed since the death. Was that kind of that pressure as well, forcing you to, like you say, not just the model to, you know, go, go with that system? Absolutely. And the cultural messages change almost from decade to decade or era to era. I lead retreats from women who've lost their mothers. I've been doing this since 2016 uh, in person at first and now online. And several hundred women have been through the retreats. And one of the first exercises that we do in the circle is we talk about what messages we got about grief. And we see that the messages are different, you know, if you lost a mom in the 1960s, for example, versus the 2000s, because the, the retreats are very intergenerational. The women range in age from 20s to 70s, usually. And um, the messages we got were different. But, you know, some people are still getting messages today from their families that date back to the 50s or 60s or 70s, because people are saying what they've heard. We just tend to parrot, you know, what we heard. But, oh, yeah, the messages I got were... Um, uh, you need to move on. You have your whole life ahead of you. It was all about forward thinking. None of it was about processing what had just happened or having feelings in the moment. It was all about trying to redirect my, my, my vision toward the future. But here's the one that I heard all the time. And this one actually, I think, did the most damage to me, which was your mother wouldn't want you to be sad. And quite a lot of clients that I work with, because I'm also a coach, have heard that your father wouldn't want you to be sad. Your mother wouldn't want you to be sad. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, I don't want to upset my mom. You were an adult. You probably knew her in ways that I didn't. So maybe you knew what she was really thinking because I'm not sure what she was really thinking. And um, I don't want to dishonor my mother after death. But I also, I feel pretty sad. So what am I supposed to do with that? Um, and I stuffed my feelings, which, you know, a lot of kids and teenagers do. In fact, the age where kids are most likely to stuff their feelings are ages seven to 11. But um, in 1981, there was not a lot of, and that's just a developmental uh, period because they're becoming intellectually aware of what death is and really understanding what that means, but they're not emotionally mature yet to handle that on their own. They need adults around them to help them process that new knowledge. And, if they don't have that, they're the ones who tend to stuff their feelings ages seven to 11. Um, there was not a lot of research even on children's bereavement when I was a teenager. My brother was nine, so he was right there, you know, in that seven to 11 range. My sister was 14. And um, over the years now, there's been quite a bit more research, but there wasn't a lot known about how children grieve back then in the 80s. And Children grieve very differently from adults. I'm sure this comes up on your podcast and you know this yourselves. And we grieve in bits and pieces over childhood. The story comes into focus slowly. This our story of how it affected us and what it means comes into focus slowly like a dial on a television, you know, that gets more clarity as you turn it because we're developing intellectually and emotionally and often getting more information too, as we age that wasn't given to us as children. And so our story is an ever evolving construct. And, um, and we will have responses, grief responses over the course of childhood as a result, but the adults around us won't always connect those dots and say, oh, this 15 year old is acting out this way because their parent died when they were 10. I'm really interested to ask you as well. Um, obviously because you were 17 when your mother died. I'm really interested in how that was for you as a woman growing up who lost her mother at 17. And so that, that role model um, kind of 
stopped at that age. Uh, how was that experience for you kind of growing up and getting older without that woman, that mother? Well, it's, that has a lot of layers. There's a lot of layers to that question. The first one is that when I was 17, I didn't know any other girls who had lost a mom except my sister and a neighbor who I didn't know very well, but since have become quite friendly with as an adult. And we talk about it a lot. Um, but so I felt different from all the other girls and the silence in my family led to a feeling of shame as silence often does. So a year later, when I went off to college, I didn't tell anyone my mom had died or I told very few people, you know, it was like my secret. Um, but when you're not talking about something, it retains its original emotional charge. So three, four years after my mother died, I couldn't even say my mother without crying. It took me a good seven years. So to answer, continue answering your question, when I got to my mid twenties, I saw that my peers, you know, my friends were starting to have more woman to woman relationships with their moms. And it was shifting into a different type of relationship. You know, it was getting past that adolescent push pull that a lot of them had had. My mom died when we were in the midst of that adolescent push pull. So we never got to resolve that. And I really felt the loss of not being able to have that woman to woman relationship and to come out of that kind of nastier phase with her. And um, that's when I went into therapy because I think I had my first big grief response then which corresponded with another loss in my life, which was a, a, an engagement that I ended. Um, those two things happened at roughly the same time. I was about 24, I think. And um, so that's when I started talking about my story and you know, discharging some of that emotion. And it helped enormously. There's a lot of research on that too, about how important it is to share our stories. And publicly, you know, that, that can be with just one other person. It doesn't have to be a big grand event on a stage, you know, but um, the sharing part, the confiding part of bereavement and is, is quite important for healing. Um, it came back around when I became a mother or became pregnant with my first daughter. I hear this from women all the time and from men too, when they become fathers, not the pregnancy part necessarily, but the fatherhood part or the parenthood part or they want to know what they were like as an infant, you know, and, and dads don't always, aren't always the, if you, if your father's still alive, don't always have that information or remember it. Um, so I missed her a lot, but I also missed her, her, her being able to be a grandmother. This would have been her first grandchild, my older daughter. I missed that my daughter having a grandmother. And then it really hit me uh, when I turned 42 this is a, in, in the after grief, I call this new old grief when you're experiencing an old loss in a new way. And it's very common among adults bereaved as children, enormously common. But I turned 42, I approached 42, I turned 42 and I passed 42. So those three years were all kind of like a bit of a cluster there where I was, um, you know, anticipating and being afraid that I might die at 42, like my mom did, you know, I'd got my mammograms and under, you know, high stress and I was fine, but it was strange to be 42 because suddenly she was like, you know, my, my friend or my peer. And then to become older than her was really, really strange. And, you know, start becoming like, almost like watching her age recede into the past. But then another one came was, was when my daughter's turned 17. And, um, I think this answers your question most directly, Holly, which is that I felt like I was dropping off a cliff. I did not know how to parent a child older than 17 because I hadn't had a mom beyond that age. My older daughter went off to college and I was like, how do you parent a child in college? Like, how often should I be calling her? What's reasonable to expect? And, you know, it occurred to me, I'm not sure that my experience would even be that useful as a guide. My experience in the 1980s versus, you know, a child going to college in the 21st century because I couldn't text my mom whenever I wanted to from college. You know, I couldn't FaceTime her. It just, it is a whole different form of communication now. And the truth is I'd spent 17, almost 18 years with my daughter when she went to college. We just continued a relationship in a way that felt comfortable to us. Now she's 23. <laughs> And we have the relationship that we have. And I'll never know if it would resemble any kind of relationship I would have had with my mom. But, you know, you just figure it out. 
because you have to. But I did have a, and when my younger daughter turned 17, I had this moment where I felt like, well, I'm done now. I'm done with parenting because they both made it to 17 and, and that's all they need. And I thought that's crazy because, you know, she's still calling me, sending me links to say, should I, should I buy this new sports bra mom? What do you think? You know, I'm still a, a big part of their lives, not as big as I was when they lived at home, but I'm still needed. It's just, I didn't get to need. I didn't have the, the opportunity to need a mom. I mean, I, I needed her, but I didn't have the opportunity to do anything with that need. So I had to just figure out what that would look like on my own. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's really funny hearing you talk about uh, the need for a mum. Because, you know, I think I spent just so much of my childhood just kind of not even thinking that I did, you know. I think I was just so used to the idea, well, I don't have one, so I have to know not to need one. But suddenly, yeah, there's experiences and there's moments as you get older of just suddenly thinking, oh, my gosh, I really do need them. And that is such, you know, it's quite, it can be quite overwhelming, I think, um, suddenly having to kind of accept that, OK, yeah, I do need them or I, I feel like I need them, if that makes sense. Well, there are a group of adults bereaved as children who become highly capable and highly functional because we have to take care of ourselves by necessity, not by choice. And that might be because a single mother has to go back to work or because a single father doesn't um, has never taken care of his kids emotionally before because that was the mother's role in the family. And um, we see that more in the fathers of the past era. You know, fathers today can get support, more, more, more support than they could get then, fortunately. But, um, you know, we we um, we see a, a lot of differences certainly over the over the decades, but um, I, you know, again, some families are more resistant to change than others. So, hope just just going back a bit to when you when you were twenty four and you first went to therapy. I'm really interested in terms of you know you talked about it. You like your 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 opportunity to let your grief out for the first time in in, in a kind of a private slash public space with a therapist. How did you go from there to beginning your career? in your writing and your work in the grief community from that person sat on the settee in, in, with the therapist for the first time? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, I was living in Tennessee at the time. It was my first job out of college. I was working in a magazine. And um, I was in a community of friends who were very therapeutically oriented. And um, <clears throat> I went away. Now, this was the 1980s. So at the time, codependency was like this big buzzword and there were all these codependency workshops and a friend said, you should go to this workshop. And uh, I think it was in Chattanooga. And so I went, you know, it was like a one week workshop. You stay there and I met other people. Everyone was there to work on family of origin issues. And they did something that I'd never encountered before, which was called empty chair work, where they sat me in a chair facing an empty chair and said, that's your mother. And um, you can have a conversation with her and we'll help you. And you know, imagine your mother sitting in the chair. And at first I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. I can't, I'm gonna feel like such a fool doing this. Like I'm talking to air. But once I started, I was really surprised by what came out, how much anger I had toward her for leaving us. I didn't even know that was there. It wasn't her fault that she died, but she did wait a year to get a lump in her breast checked. And um, I was so angry and upset about that. And really all I could do with that at that point was let the anger out, express it, and then make a commitment that I would always, you know, be on top of my own medical care, you know, as a result, using that as a cautionary tale. But to be able to do that was really extraordinary. And, you know, they had us, you know, beating pillows and really making it physical. And it helped, you know, against, you know, all, all of my, you know, criticisms. It really helped a lot. And I felt that that was a good opportunity for me to um, just open up that door a bit, which had been so tightly shut. And then uh, I, I went to graduate school for writing and um, I wasn't writing about the death of my mom. It was sort of there as an undercurrent in some of my work, but I took a course in graduate school. It was a course on, this is a funny story, a course on portraiture, which meant we just picked one person and we were going to research them and write about them for the whole semester. And it could be someone we knew well, or it could be someone we didn't know at all. It could be a public figure. Uh, the course was taught by Mary Swander, who's now the poet laureate of Iowa. She was an excellent professor. 
She also teaches nonfiction. And I chose Bruce Springsteen because I grew up in New York, right over the New Jersey border. And his music was really important to my group of friends. And I wanted to explore the impact of his lyrics on us. You know, why this group of middle-class, you know, Jewish and Italian uh, New Yorkers identified so strongly with this working class kid from New Jersey who sang about, you know, uh, problems that we didn't really have, but there was something in there. So I wanted to explore that. So I started writing about Bruce Springsteen and then I was surprised. My high school boyfriend showed up and he had been a huge Springsteen fan. And then, you know, each week we had a new writing assignment. And so I felt like I was sort of unpeeling back the layers. And then one week what showed up was that this was the boy that I met the year after my mother died. And he was the only one who would really talk with me about it. And, um, he had also suffered a major loss of one of his best friends. And so um, I started writing about him, but I, then I started writing about the year after my mother died. And now I'm way off, you know, in the distance from Bruce Springsteen. And I remember going to Mary's office hours and saying, I, what should I do? Because now I'm writing about something different. Should I scale it back? Should I just, you know, stick to the assignment? And she said, no, this is really good stuff. Just keep going. I'm gonna, don't worry about this being a portraiture course. You just keep going. And um, I said, you know, this is the first time I'm writing about losing my mom. I said, I've never been able to find anything else written about girls who lost their moms. In fact, I'm starting to think maybe I should write that book myself. And Mary said, I was 20 when my mom died and I took care of her. I was a little bit older than 20 actually. And she said, if you write that book, I'll help you because that book is really important. And so the two of us and my advisor in grad school who was orphaned young, he had lost both of his parents as a child kind of just, you know, put together an idea for a book. And that's how my first book came about. I never expected to get into bereavement coaching or leading retreats. Um, my goal was to be a writer, but I found that um, I really fell in love with the readers of this book and I saw such a need. This is a niche in the bereavement world that is still relatively untapped. And I hear from people all the time saying, you know, my, I'm about to get married or I'm about to become a parent and I'm really struggling now because my dad died and my mom died and it's coming up for me in a really big new way. And I called a bereavement center or a charity or a trust and I asked if they have a group and they said, how long ago did your parent die? And I said, 15 years. And they say, we only have, at least in the U S we only have resources for the first two years after a door, after a death. So we can give you a list of private counselors, which is not what people are looking for necessarily. They want to meet other people who can understand them. And not everyone has the financial resources, at least here in the U.S., to get counseling or the time. So um, the after brief is, you know, now has expanded into online programs and online support um, for adults bereaved as children and specifically uh, women who've lost mothers, but not exclusively because, um, and I'm hoping after COVID, we'll be able to expand it and ramp it up into more in-person readings and conferences. That was my plan before COVID came along. So we're in a holding pattern at the moment, but I do hope for more expansion because what I have observed is almost miraculous. When you get a group of adults bereaved as children in a room together, specifically, I do this with women who've lost their moms. They sit in a circle. Generally, we have 26 women in a circle, two facilitators, so 28 people in the room. And you watch their identities start to shift on the first night. And you can see it in their bodies and their faces because they have been walking around for a long time, some of them, some of them for decades, feeling and thinking, I'm the only one who understands this. Nobody, nobody knows what it's like to have lost a mom when they were young. And then we go around the circle just that first night and we talk about you know, who, how old we were when our mom died, what she died from and why we've chosen to come and, and do this at this time in our lives. And the women, you just see them, they're like, oh my God, I'm hearing my story over and over again around the circle. And they can't say anymore, nobody understands me because now there's 27 other women who understand them. And the relief, you know, you just, you watch their bodies relax. And by the second or third day, they're laughing, they're making friends. And these groups of women stay in touch. Years later, they're still in touch. They're having reunions. They're supporting each other through marriages and divorces. And 
they have become sort of like a mothering group for each other. So it's extraordinarily important and they say it changes their lives. And so I hope we can get, you know, do more and more of that and expand it even more broadly. I know that in the UK, there's, there, there, you got started with Adults Bereave with Children a bit earlier than we did here in the US, both in terms of research and in terms of services. Um, and I, uh, so I know that some, one, at least one of your bereavement trusts, Winston's Wish has really committed itself and the work of psychotherapist Mandy Gosling is also focusing on adults bereaved as children. And I think that's really important. Some of the founders of your trusts too, like Shelly Gilbert, who founded Grief Encounter also lost parents when she was, a parent when she was young. So, um, and my friends in the UK told me there was a big boost in discussion around this topic or like permission to talk about it after uh, the prince's talked about Diana's death, the 20th anniversary. And there've been, the BBC has been all over this too in a really good way. I'm, I'm sure you've seen the videos that they've put out and Tony Livesey on talk radio did a series about men who lost their moms. That was just extraordinary. So you have a lot of activity there. I think that's great. It increases public awareness that this isn't something that goes away. It's something we carry with us forever. I still think I mean I, I agree with you it is the princess stuff is great but I think it's it's been it's been a long time coming and you know better late than never but those two boys what they you know would the boy the princes lost their mother a year before I lost my mother and you know we grew up obviously I was not in the public eye I was you know just a boy on my own but they had to do what what I did you know having their mum being one of the most famous women in the world and I never forget those images from the funeral of these two boys who, who were my size, my age. And they're at, you know, these state funerals. There's, you know, the press are there. There's like heads of state there. And, and I, I mean, Harry has, I mean, the press in this country have just been absolutely despicable, especially, and Harry's like never forgiven them. And I'm sure that's why Harry and Meghan left um, because they could never get over that. But, you know, that grief, grieving in the public sphere as the prince has had to do, is something that has always touched my heart because of because of how close we were in age. I, I can't imagine how much more complicated that would make losing losing your mother. And I think complicated is absolutely the word. That's true. I mean, I'm here in Los Angeles, so I work with clients or know quite a few um, children of celebrities who have died, and it does complicate their grief. The same way that it might complicate someone's grief if it's a horrific um, death or a, a newsworthy death, like a, a murder that goes, you know, and the trials in the paper, you know, it's your, your private grief is being put on public display. And that's difficult. Um, I lead now every Tuesday, phone calls, 90 minute phone calls from other, the motherless daughters community. We do a different topic every week and women show up on zoom and they share their stories and they have this very interactive. They can find other women who have stories similar to theirs. And they're coming from all over the world. We have women participating from Australia, Canada, South America, the UK, Israel, um, Germany, with a few from Germany. They're waking up at one in the morning to be in the calls. It's incredible. But um, in week three, we, ha we have a guest speaker every month. And this year, um, this month in week three, we have Natasha Gregson Wagner coming to talk with us about the memoir she wrote about the death of her mother, Natalie Wood, the actress. Natasha was a child when her mom died, and it was a very public death but she has a very private story, you know, she, it was her mom and she was in a family. And, and so she's gonna be talking with us about that exactly. And also about revisiting her story to write her memoir. And um, yes, it is, it is more complicated. Those videos of the princes, you know, here in the US for us, it was reminiscent of the pictures of um, Caroline and John Kennedy at the funeral of their father in the 1960s. Those photographs of little John John standing there in his coat, you know, as his father's in front of his father's grave. Um, yeah, um, agreed. But I do think that, you know, the prince is talking more about mental health and about their own bereavement gives permission to a wider, you know, swath of society to start talking about theirs as well. And when I was in um, last in the UK in 2018, um, Mandy Gosling and I co produced a symposium in London for motherless daughters. And we had about, I think, 120 women who signed up and we'd filled pretty quickly. And we did a BBC interview, radio interview the day before on Women's Hour. And we were flooded with um, emails from women who wanted to attend. We had this very long 
list. I think we were originally at 100 or 80 and and the room agreed to, you know, like expand for us to bring more women in. But, um, you know, the BBC interviewer said, this is incredible, you know, this response that we're getting. I think the time is right. Because in the 90s, when Motherless Daughters first came out, it's now in its third edition, it really didn't sell that well in the UK. I came and I did a tour and I did interviews, but there wasn't really, I just think it, it wasn't, culture wasn't ready maybe to talk about it yet in 1994. But by now, there's so much conversation and so much more awareness of mental health and the long lasting effects of children's bereavement. A shout out also to Carrie Adloy and, and Griefcast, because I think that her podcast has also brought a lot of awareness to the long, the lingering effects of early parent loss and or early loss. And here in the U.S., um, there's a podcast called Dead, pa Dead Parents Society um, that also interviews artists who have um, mainly writers, but um, others who have lost a parent when they were young, too. It's similar to Briefcast. Something I'd really, really like to ask you. Um, so a good proportion of your book um, talks about uh, the importance and necessity for narrative and storytelling and and owning our own story and, and, and piecing it together. Um, and you just talk about talk about it so so amazingly. Um, so I just want to ask you a little bit more about that, and if you can sort of tell, tell us a bit about um, the importance of narrative and, and storytelling. Sure. Well, I come from a narrative background because I teach nonfiction writing and story structure is, you know, kind of in, in my DNA at this point. And I've also studied narrative therapy, which is very much about helping people um, expand their stories and create alternative and equally true narratives that they can carry side by side with um, the stories that they tell. Um, our stories are based in part on the information that we have. Um, our developmental maturity and our ability to even create a narrative because before the age of seven or eight, children can't even really create narratives. They, they can't, you know, arrange facts in a chronological cause and effect manner. They also don't know how to summarize. Like if you ask your kindergartner about the movie they just saw, they will often just give you a blow by blow account of every minute of it, right? They don't know how to summarize it. So the brain is developing and learning how to shape a narrative um, from a very young age incrementally. But um, the stories that we tell ourselves, I think, are what we use as, you know, to form our own identities. And sometimes the story changes. Sometimes we get information later in life that we didn't know. I'll give you an example. I told you that I was carrying the story for a long time that my mom did not know she was dying, that my dad knew and didn't tell her. All this was true, except when I was researching motherless daughters, I got her medical records. And I saw that when she was in the hospital after her surgery, a social worker was trying to tell her how serious her cancer was. And she would not listen. She kept pushing back against that and refusing to hear it. So I realized that my mother was in some ways a participant in that process, you know, of not knowing how sick she was. And then um, a few years later, I visited with her best friend in Florida and was telling her, you know, about this part of the story. And she said, Hope, I've known your mom since we were 13 years old. And I can tell you, I don't think she was strong enough to handle that news. I would not rule out that there was an unspoken agreement between her and your father, that he would get the bad news and then he would, you know, decide what to tell her and that she may have been okay with that, you know, either consciously or subconsciously. And that just threw me into a spin because I thought, okay, now my story is changing again. And, but that's what happens, you know, our stories change. And if we allow them to, if we very rigidly hold on to a story because we don't want to shift that identity, that's one thing. But if we are willing to let our stories change, um, then our identity might change with them as well. Uh, also, you know, our perspectives shift. Something, a very, very, you know, core belief of mine in, that I express in the aftergrief is that the facts of a death are immutable. They don't change. My mom will always have died of breast cancer in 1981 when I was 17 and she was 42. I can't change that. But my interpretation of those facts and my relationship to those facts has actually changed quite a bit over time. Like I told you, it changed when I became a mother, it changed when I turned 42. Um, and 
And I think that's part of the beauty of, you know, maturity is that when we allow our story to change, we have deeper and, you know, deeper understanding. I think our, our empathy can also grow. It makes us, um, I think it's a way of achieving what we might even call wisdom. And um, I think I'm older than the two of you, probably by a good 10 or 20 years at least, or more. Um, you'll see, you'll see how it happens. It's gonna look really different to you in another 10 or 20 years than it does now. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I don't think that's something to be afraid of or worried about. I think it's exciting to see how it's going to change and grow because you will start seeing how that story of a parent's death, which, you know, as a narrative and structure ends with the parent dying and the immediate aftermath and your adjustment to it, also holds within it the possibility of setting into motion a chain of other events that are going to lead to other things in your life. I mean, in my life, my daughters exist because my mother died, because my mother's death set into motion a chain of events that eventually led me to write a book that led me to start a nonprofit in New York City that meant I needed office space that introduced me to someone, uh, two men who were renting space in their office. And I started dating one of those men and I married him and he became the father of my children. So if I trace it back like that, my two daughters are in the world today, both carrying a piece of my mother's name because my mother died. And I don't, I used to, and I don't anymore get into the mindset of, well, would I rather have my mother back or would I rather have my daughters here? I find that utterly useless and, and wasteful because I don't have that choice. I want both, right? I can't have both, but I can't, you know, get her back either. So I might as well wish that I could have both. Um, it's not a trade-off. I just, I do acknowledge that some good things can come out of sorrow. And I think that is for me, um, the highest form, I, I, I think of resilience and adjustment. I think all of what you've just said is, it sort of encapsulates how important it is that that we do have access to things and and you know support and and things like your book and charities that that can tell us these things you know it's it's so easy as, as a 20 year old or as a 17 year old to kind of go oh i'm really scared of what life might look like i'm really scared of getting to a point where i'm going to be a mother because i don't know what it is and you know to finally sort of be able to have someone to say Oh, it will be okay, and some of it will be beautiful. It's so important because otherwise, everything scary. You know, I work with a lot of young women who are thinking about becoming mothers, and a number of them say, "I don't know if I can do it because I don't know if I can do it without my mom." And what do you advise? And my answer is almost always this: there are a lot of good reasons not to have children. One of them being perhaps you don't like being around children. <laughs> Um, it's a pretty good reason, maybe not to have a child. I said, but if your only reason for not having a child is because you're afraid that you're not going to know how to be a mom because your mom's not here or that you're not going to have her support, I would encourage you to consider doing it anyway. And I'll tell you this, it will be hard. It will be harder for you in some ways than it is for your friends who have involved and loving and functional mothers. Um, it will be easier in some ways too than it will be for your friends who have really manipulative, controlling or difficult mothers. Um, but you're imagining that the baby will be here tomorrow and you won't know what to do. Bear in mind that even if you got pregnant tomorrow, you have nine or 10 months to set up a team of people to help you. And I can give you advice about what kind of team to set up because it's really helpful to have um, to reach out. The thing is, these women are not great at asking for help because they've had to rely on themselves for so long. So first we have to work on helping them feel comfortable asking for assistance and, 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 and working with the resistance of, well, she's not my mother, so I don't want her here. I only want my mother, you know, because there are, you can piece together a team of people that will be able to help you. And yeah, I say it will be harder and it will be sadder for you in some ways, but it will also be in so many ways so much more joyful for you to have this child so much you'll appreciate getting that bond back if this is something that you really do want because if you're coming to me saying i really want to be a mother but i might not do it because i'm scared for this reason that this is what i say if someone comes and says i'm really not sure if i want to be a mother and this is one of the reasons why i'm not sure then we're going to unpack that a lot more because there might be other reasons that they're feeling hesitant 
But if it's only because they're afraid they can't do it without their mom, I, I say, here I stand for you as an example of someone who thought I couldn't do it without my mom, and I did it twice. And I have these two amazing daughters who are out there being citizens of the world. And I wasn't perfect, and I made mistakes, and sometimes I didn't know what the heck I was doing, and I was just, I felt like I was mothering by the seat of my pants. But we got through it, you know, and I'm glad that they're, I'm thrilled that they're in this world. I can't imagine the world without them or my world without them. So, but yeah, there is a, you know, a, a lot of um, concern about not being able to do it without your mom. And especially if you knew your mom would have been an involved and loving grandmother. And that's a what we call a secondary loss, something to be mourned that your mom won't be there for that. Um, but there are also ways it's not, obviously, it's not even second or third best, but there are ways to bring her into your mothering and, and let your children get to know her so that she's not completely absent in that experience. Hope, in your in your writing and, and in your work, I imagine as well, you speak to lots of people, as you, as you said on here, about their grief, about their stories, about their journeys through life. How does that affect you as Hope Elderman, who is somebody who lost, having all that gr other people's grief that you you do so amazingly, you know, to do something positive and to help other people with all your work. But does that ever catch you? Does that ever affect you through your work? And, and how do you manage that? Oh, that's such a good question. It's affected me differently over the years. When I first started writing Motherless Daughters, I was so thrilled to meet other women who understood me and who I could understand that I like couldn't stop doing interviews. I was constantly, you know, taxiing around New York City and flying around the country because I did all those interviews in person. We didn't have Skype yet or FaceTime in the 1990s or even email, unbelievably. But um, so at first I was just really excited. Um, but occasionally, you know, I would hear a story, a really tragic story. It would get to me. Yeah, it would really get to me. When I do retreats, sometimes I cry in the circle with the women, you know, because some of their stories really move me. I don't want to lose that sensitivity or that ability to feel empathy for them. But it does require um, skills of compartmentalization because when I'm leading a retreat, I need to be there for those women. And my stuff is not part of that circle. But I co-facilitate. I always have someone with me, um, generally a therapist, um, not always, but generally. But we, um, we check in with each other. You know, we compartmentalize while we're in the circle, but then, you know, during the free time or during meals, we sit together and say, how are you doing? Did anything come up for you? I know that, oh, you know, so-and-so's story, it's really similar to yours. How are, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And so, and then self-care. After the retreats are four days, they're very intense. They, they end on a Sunday at lunch. And I always take Sunday afternoon to myself before I go back to my regular activities because it's important for me to have that buffer zone. But I'm really committed to being present just for the women or just for my clients or just for the people on the calls. And so um, it, it wasn't something that came naturally to me, you know, and it doesn't to most therapists or coaches. It's a learned behavior. But you learned how to be able to set aside your stuff so that you can be there for the people you need to be there for and then come back and then engage in whatever kind of self-care or processing you need to do on your own or with a compassionate friend or therapist yourself. Um, it is heavy now during COVID. There's so much grief and there's so much death. And um, so I have, I am lucky to have extraordinary colleagues in this field. And um, we talk to each other. And for a while there was, um, for a couple of months last year in the US, actually it was worldwide, there were people from the UK who joined us. We had like an online collective, like a mastermind group of bereavement academics, authors, activists, professionals who were meeting um, Fridays and then every other Friday just to have a place to come where we could be in the company of other people that were trying to figure out how are we going to help you know, the wider culture through this experience. What work are each of us doing? Let's catch each other up. And then we started cross-pollinating. So for example, through this, and that, you know, helps a lot because then we feel like we're being of service. We're doing some good because we're dealing with such a new experience here where, I mean, we haven't been in this, this position since 1918, really, where loved ones are dying and we cannot engage in our familiar mourning behaviors. This is what exactly what happened during the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 to 1919, and it messed up mourning 
for a century, almost a century, it really did. And I can explain why if you're interested, because a lot of this happened in the UK, actually. But um, we were getting together and I met these two young women in Canada who started a company to help people create rituals around life events. And I said, hey, can we work together? Like, can you consult with me? Can we create some rituals for the, um, for the after grief community? And so on the, at the aftergrief.com now, we have templates that people can follow to um, commemorate a death anniversary, which we don't have in the culture. We have no way to say, wow, it's the 10th anniversary of my dad's death, or this July is the 40th anniversary of my mother's death. I wanna do something, but I don't know what to do. So we've created templates that people can personalize for their own use. And then the other big one is we created a ritual or ceremony around reaching and passing your parents' age at time of death, because that's so significant. It's such a significant rite of passage and it's not really acknowledged in, in Western culture. So um, that helped a lot to cross pollinate and feel like we were, we had some agency, we're trying you know, to adapt quickly in real time to meet some of these very new cultural needs that have developed in the past year. Do you think that COVID putting death, grief and loss in the public sphere for such a sustained amount of time will fundamentally change how the world views grief? Or do you think in 10 years time, we'll go back to how we were in 2019? Oh God, you know, I'm not sure. I can see it going either way. I really can. Um, I think we are ex all experiencing a form of complicated grief now, but it's a newly complicated grief, you know, because of it's the, it's the kind of complicated grief that people were probably experiencing back in 1918. But it's so different now because of our technological advancements and the, you know, the research that we've done on mourning and, and bereavement. Um, my hope is that we will in some ways be able to quickly get back to the morning rituals that we did have because there's so few of them after 1918, 19, when people couldn't mourn publicly anymore and the elaborate Victorian rituals couldn't be performed and funerals became small and mourning periods became contracted. We lost a lot of the, um, mourners lost their status in society and then modernism came along and shoved people back into work very quickly for productivity i mean i don't know i think in the in the uk i've been reading that there's more of a movement to, for extended bereavement leave at work but in the us the average is 3 days which is not even enough in some religions to plan your funeral and have your mourning period 3 days of paid leave beyond that you're unpaid or you go into your sick days and personal days but um I think we need to hold on to what little we still had or get back to it, which was really the funeral, the memorial service, a celebration of life, if that's what the family chose to do. The eulogies are important because they, you know, that, that's the village coming together to mourn as a whole. That's the social aspect of grief, which we really lost in the 19 teens. And Sigmund Freud didn't help us much either with his paper in 1917 that described mourning as work internal interior you know intellectual work and in, rather than a, a, a wider social or cultural experience my hope is that we will go back to having funerals in person as soon as it's safe to do so but that we will create a hybrid where we can still live stream or zoom parts of it because that has allowed people who couldn't otherwise be there in person to still participate and it gives them some sense of purpose and meaning and then the village really can come together to mourn the, the loss of one of its own. A lot of people can't travel on short notice, like in the US, you know, to get a pay for a flight or get time off of work or find someone to watch your children means sometimes that you can't physically come to the funeral. But if we can get everyone who can physically be there, plus anyone who can be there through Zoom or live stream, I actually think that would be a really positive experience for the mourners all the mourners, you know, the family itself and those who want to come together to offer support. So that's my hope. But yeah, I, I, mourning behavior will change. We are, I, I hope, becoming more literate about talking about death and dying. What I hope we are not becoming is more inured to it. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, which is or has been the COVID capital of America, if not the world for the past six weeks. There's so many people dying here and they're being reduced to just numbers. 
and there are efforts and initiatives now to give a name and a story to every number, of, you know, but it's, you know, it's staggering. It's unbelievable to me that I'm sitting in a country where more than 400,000 people have died. And that is acceptable to a large percentage of our population. There is nothing acceptable about 400,000 people dying. Um, I, the universe, I think it was Penn State University did a study that said for every person who dies, there are, um, I believe, nine close family members who are bereaved. Well, if you do the math, my Lord, it's three and a half million people who are mourning right now. That's incredible. That's a lot of mourners who are not getting to engage in the rituals that they came to depend on. A lot of, I mean, I have a family member who died and his immediate family was able to go to the graveside ceremony, but then they're, they're isolated in their homes, you know, mourning alone or just by phone or Zoom. And, and, you know, this whole practice of having to say goodbye to someone on a screen, it's, we're going to be dealing with the fallout of this for quite a long time. Um, I hope there will be enough grief therapists to handle the demand right now in the US, um, we're hearing that there won't be. It makes me it makes me question as well, you know, the people that are having to work in the hospitals as well, although they're not directly related to these people that they're seeing dying every day, but they're having to witness and experience the, the death of people constantly. Like that is just a huge, huge emotional, you know, strain on them. It's 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 astonishing really. It is. You know what I'm seeing though? I follow a number of doctors on Twitter who are tweeting about their experiences, which I think is good. It's an outlet for them to be able to let the world know what they're witnessing, but it's also an opportunity for them to receive an outpouring of empathy and gratitude. And I hope that's helping them because in lieu of being able to, you know, process it professionally or in a group setting, um, I hope that it is helping to sustain them and giving them a sense of, you know, some sense of purpose and meaning um, because yes, um, it's very, very hard for them. And for the essential workers who have to go to work every day, fearful for their own health. It's just bringing, I think bringing in a way, like, as you say, those numbers on the news, you know, you log in every day at six o'clock and just seeing zeros and, and, you know, long numbers of just, of just deaths in all these countries. Um, it, it did something interesting to me though one of my friends said to me um was listening to one of our episodes and said you know we're hearing more about grief now given what's happened in the pandemic and he said this is what you've had your whole life and i was like yeah it's, it's slightly different but it, in, a, in a way and and i suppose maybe the positive and you know as you talk about in, in the after grief that you know sharing your story you know narratives can change putting it in an external sphere with with other people you know other institutions uh, you know even if it's something creative like a project does you know gives that legacy to the grief which in a way helps helps the healing of, of you know like you say when you were very angry you were angry at your mother for, for you know not you know not 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 sharing about the cancer or doing more on that that it, the discourse on grief in a way can be a positive thing because it's opening up those conversations which certainly as you said in america definitely in england it's stiff upper lip, stop talking about it and crack on with the day. And, and maybe that will change after this. And, you know, it, what once the healing processes has happened. And that may be a very ultimately, maybe not in the short term, but ultimately a very positive sea change in the culture. Um, if it allows people to open up and talk about that more. I know here after 9-11, I remember hearing from a lot of adults bereaved as children saying, now so many people understand how I've felt all these years, you know, to have something so shocking and so sudden occur. Um, of course, that was a much lower number of people who had died, but it was, the country really was in mourning collectively. And, um, and they said that they felt that, you know, some of them understood. But you know what's, what's interesting, I've found among, and I don't know if you've found this maybe in any of your interviewees or in your own experience, but among adult bereaved as adults bereaved as children, I had a very interesting thread going on on my Facebook authors page about this at the beginning of the pandemic, about how these individuals said, yes, um, they were frightened about what happened with the pandemic, that, you know, the feelings of helplessness and not knowing, you know, what the future would look like were bringing up, you know, old grief for them, but that they said they also felt kind of uniquely capable at dealing with crisis. 
because they had managed it before. And they said they were watching people around them really fall apart and that they were the ones who were telling people it's going to be okay, you're going to get through this. It's, it's called in psychology, a diminished sense of crisis. When you feel that you have managed something really big and unmanageable and you know that you can survive it, right? You have that form of resilience. You may face other crises that feel you know, frightening or really destabilizing, but you do have an inner sense of faith that you're going to get through this. And they said, I'm much, a lot of them said, I'm, I'm handling this much more calmly than I would have expected, but I know how to deal with a crisis. Some of them said, I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop my whole life. You know, it's like, I have this sense of perceived vulnerability that bad things happen in the world. So when's the next one coming? Oh, here it is. I know how to deal with this. I'll just deal with it again. Really, it was a really fast, it's a fascinating mindset, you know? And, um, but I think in a way that that has yeah. protected them, some, some of them a bit throughout this past year of, you know, chaos. It's so funny. I think I heard Carrie Lloyd articulate that exact same thing. One of her episodes, yeah. And it was before the pandemic actually, but she kind of describes this feeling of, um, kind of when there's not a crisis being panicked of when the next crisis is going to be and then when you're actually faced with it being really good in it <laughs> and being able to be calm and, and okay in that situation it's exactly that it is the anticipation is often much more um, anxiety producing than the actuality of it the, in the actuality it's like we tap into muscle memory the survivor's muscle memory and we figure out how to get through it the important thing that was on the other side, we need to be able to process what we've just been through. So talking about where, where you are now, um, Hope, you, you spoke, I can't remember whether it was online or, or on here about how, you know, once the world opens up, there's loads more to do with this fantastic book. You want to get it out there, get it to many more countries, get talks, all that amazing stuff. What's, what's next after that? And, you know, you, you've had a long career and it seems like you're, you know, you've still got so much more to give. Like, what are your ambitions for the future uh, in your work and in the grief community? I'd like to be able to develop more robust programs for um, not just adults bereaved as children, but anyone who has a loss in the past that, you know, is bubbling up again or recycling up again. Long-term bereavement, I call it. I'd like to create programs, I hope, <coughs> or centers that can pick up where the existing grief charities or, or, or here bereavement centers um, leave off. So they're excellent here in the US at helping people through the crisis or the fresh stage of grief, which is generally you know the first two to three years. But then when you've got someone who is in their 10th year and not everybody can grieve right at the time of loss, you know there is postponed or delayed grief. I think we're gonna be seeing that this spring. I'm ready for that because um, well, I don't mean ready. I mean, I'm anticipating it. I'm almost expecting it because those of us, not just who lost loved ones, but who lost jobs or lost, you know, our livelihoods or lost marriages or during the pandemic, um, were on survival mode for a while and maybe didn't have the opportunity to really, you know, feel the grief because we had a lot of other stuff going on at the same time that we were trying to manage. And then it hits you later. Um, when you when you are stable enough and feel safe enough to be able to have those emotions because they're going to scramble you up a little bit for a while at least. I think um, the one year anniversary of the first known COVID deaths too, which here, you know, certainly in New York and other places, Italy will be coming in, um, what is that, February, March, February, March, April. What happens is oftentimes that the bereaved steel themselves against getting through that first year. I need to get through the first birthday without my loved one, the first holiday season without my loved one, the first anniversary of their death. But then you discover that your reward for getting through the first year is that you have another year to get through, you know? And sometimes there's a dip in functioning at that point. So, and that's normal under any circumstance, but under the COVID circumstance, when people have been on survival mode, it might be a little more amped up. So I want to keep, um, I'm moving more into service providing. I will continue writing and speaking, of course, but um, I'd like to get in-person groups back together and continue the retreats and expand them and maybe even start training other facilitators 
so that we can get more and more of these groups and bring them international. I was just about to go international. I had a, a we were taking it to Toronto. It was going to be our first international, and then my plans were UK and Australia, and then COVID hit. And we can't get on a plane, so it just hit the pause button. So it's to bring the work more international too, in person, because what happens, the magic that happens in person really can't be replicated on the screen, which is not to say that what we do on the screen isn't helpful, it is. It still keeps people from feeling isolated and alone, but the in-person magic is something I, I really hope to get back to as soon as possible. I feel like I want to be in the room just hearing you talk about these retreats. It's I'm, I'm like, oh, I want to be there. I want to experience it because I can see it on your face. It's it's obviously so special and and you're it's incredible. Okay, so let's 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 look at 2022 in the UK, Craig. I'll be back. <laughs> I'll be there. Literally, I'm, I'm it's in my diary now. Hope, fantastic. Well, hope. I just want to say a huge, huge thank you for talking to us today. Um, I'll finish your book. The After Grief uh, is released here in the UK. Um, at the start of March and is available from all good um, book platforms. It is out in the United States at the moment and I believe kind of further international dates uh, will follow. But yeah, from the bottom of my heart, I hope you're an inspiration for what you do to, for the grief community. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's, it's been a privilege talking to you. Thank you. Same here. That hour went very fast. Thank you. You've been listening to Got Grief. If you'd like to know more about us, you can follow us on our Instagram page at Got Grief Podcast. A huge thank you to all of our guests and listeners and tune in next time for more Got Grief.